Uh, one thing you may have noticed, and, and some of you are probably celebrating, is that I, I haven't been using the Edmonton Oilers very often in my sermon illustrations lately. <laughs> and that's mostly because the Oilers aren't worth talking about these days. It's been very, it's been a very frustrating season for Oilers fans like myself. Don't even, why? Are you, yeah. It's been a very frustrating season for Oilers fans. And most of that frustration, for me at least, can be attributed directly to the position of general manager. I know not everybody is a huge sports fan, but the general manager is basically not the CEO of the team, but the boss of the team. They make all the big decisions. The role of managing a professional sports team, I admit, would be an incredibly challenging one. And I'm reluctant to celebrate or gloat over anybody losing their job. That's just not a cool thing to do. But by the time the Oilers finally relieved GM Peter Shirelli of his duties, it was already several months and maybe even years too late. The damage was done. He was easily one of the worst GMs in the NHL. Here he is giving a thumbs up. No, Mr. Shirelli. No, thumbs down. Uh, his badness was crippling our local hockey team. He made a series of big trades every summer that bled precious talent away from the Oilers. His free agent signings ranged from meh to barf. Um, he's shown a blatant disregard for the salary cap. The salary cap, you only have so much money you can spend on players on your team, and you have to choose wisely how you're going to spend it. So the MVP of the league, Connor McDavid, rightfully deserves the most money on the team. But when you have third or fourth line Players, they should be paid league minimum, which is still a lot of money. But he, he just totally mismanaged and bungled the salary cap, which makes it significantly harder to sign effective players down the road. It's just a mess. But to me, the last straws occurred in the past couple months. Shirelli made four consecutive trades and signings in which he just outright lost. He just lost every one of them. He sacrificed scoring and penalty killing, which are two Euler weaknesses, as always, and he sacrificed salary cap room and draft picks to take on players who are less effective on the ice and who come with longer, more expensive contracts that will continue to haunt the Oilers off the ice. It's just a big facepalm. Like, what are, you, what are you doing? It was not pretty. Now, every single GM in, in every sport in history has an imperfect track record. Again, it's a really tough job, and not every trade or contract you sign or draft pick you choose is is going to be a net win for your organization. But what made the last few months of activity by Peter Shirelli so indictable was the fact that he was clearly getting more and more desperate to save his own job. And when you are desperate to fix a complicated issue, you start to exhibit more and more unwise tendencies. This is true not just in general managing, but any anytime you start to panic, your decision-making maybe isn't as strong as it could be. The players he brought in with their ugly contracts and ineffective play were intended as short-term fixes for a bad hockey team. And it's pretty easily arguable it just made them worse. But those those short-term fixes have long-term consequences when it comes to the Oilers achieving their ultimate goal. And for any hockey team, what is the ultimate goal? To win the Stanley Cup. Desperate GMs who mismanage assets to save their jobs today are not concerned with two, three, five, eight years down the road. They don't have the bigger picture in mind, and so they fail. Those GMs who are regularly regarded as the best in the league, the National Predators, the Winnipeg Jets, the Tampa Bay Lightning, and, ugh, hate to admit it, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the best GMs in the NHL 
are able to navigate free agent signings and draft choices and trades effectively because they are able to keep sight of the bigger picture. Building a team that can win today while also building a team, building towards a team that can win in the future as well. You have to have both in mind. You can't sacrifice the long term for a chance at something right now. You can't sacrifice all of it anyway. As it is, the Oilers are built to do neither. They are not built to win today or tomorrow. It's a mess. They will flounder for a couple years at least, shedding awful contracts, shedding ineffective players, waiting for young players to develop into complementary scorers and defenders and goalkeepers, wasting the prime years of their MVP's career. That's the most galling part. All because their management team seems to have lost sight of the bigger picture. The church, this is a hard transition, the church in Philippi loved Paul very much. They owed their very existence to his faithfulness, and they had committed to support him more than any other church in the 15 years between their first meeting by the river and when Paul's writing this letter. They love him very much, and they know a little bit about his situation, enough about his situation that they are worried about their friend Paul. They were worried about his physical well-being. Roman prison sentences didn't carry a reputation of being gentle and kind. They were worried about his financial well-being since he had lost much of his freedom to support himself. It's hard to make tents when you're chained at the wrist to a Roman guard at all times. They were worried about his emotional well-being since experiencing things like injustice and oppression and imprisonment all have a habit of, of wearing down even the most faithful disciple. And they were worried about his spiritual well-being. They were worried that his mission had been taken away from him, his, his ability to evangelize. And they, they worried that maybe he was starting to get frustrated with God and they, they were just worried about him for a lot of reasons. There was a lot of reasons to be worried. But as we'll see, Paul will answer their anxious worry and he will calm their fearful, fearful concern. How? By demonstrating repeatedly that he has not lost sight of the bigger picture. He hasn't lost sight of the bigger picture. At the moment, Paul may look like a failed general manager, fired from his role as evangelist, suffering the scorn of imprisonment, crippled by as many sources of suffering. But Paul doesn't identify with any of those forlorn identities. Paul is not a woe-is-me kind of a guy. Instead, he rejoices. Despite all the mess he's in, he rejoices. He sees success in both the short term and the long term. He has his eyes on the bigger picture. So let's find out what that bigger picture is as we read verses 12 to 18. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. It's a pretty stunning passage. Pretty shocking. I've mentioned several times in the last few weeks that Philippians is written in the form of a friendly letter, a Roman writing style that has a strict formulaic outline. Paul's greeting fits this formula perfectly. Um, from blank to blank greetings. Although he expands that formula 
with his gospel urgency. The next thing that always happens in these friendly letters is uh, a word of thanksgiving or a prayer of intercession. One of the two and often both, and Paul does both. He offers a prayer of thanksgiving and then a prayer of intercession. Um, that fits the formula, although he expands that too with the urgency of the gospel. Well, in these friendly letters, after the greeting, after the, the prayer, Roman friendship letters always move into, into the next portion of the letter with the exact same phrase. Every Roman letter has this phrase, I want you to know that, dot, dot, dot. I want you to know that. I've read several preserved examples of of these kinds of letters from antiquity. They've found quite a few of them, and I've read a few of them, and they all literally say exactly the same thing. I want you to know that. So, for example, I want you to know that I am safe from the battlefront. I want you to know that I will be returning to Egypt with the grain harvest soon. I want you to know that my archery training is going well. That It's that sort of... It's, it's a friendly Roman way of giving a personal update while also acknowledging the concerns of the beloved. So it's saying, I know you're worried about that, but I want you to know that I'm okay and this is why. That's its purpose. And it's always initiated with the phrase, I want you to know that. Well, guess what? Here we are in this friendly letter, the letter to the Philippians, and Paul is following the formula of the Roman letter to a T. He begins verse 12 with, I want you to know my beloved brothers and sisters in Philippi, that. So he's doing exactly the same thing. But as with the greeting, as with the prayer, it it looks formulaic, but Paul totally shatters the formula. And he makes it all about the gospel. So here, I want you to know that the Philippians would expect Paul to give an update about himself, about how he's doing, and to calm their fears about how he's doing. Well, sure, Paul gives an update, Sure, he immediately sets out to calm their anxieties and fear. What does it say? It says, I want you to know that, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it's very calming. It takes their anxiety away, their their worry. It, he, he gives an update and he, he calms their nerves, but he doesn't give an update about himself. He doesn't say much about what's happening to himself. And he doesn't calm their anxieties and fears by demonstrating his own safety and comfort. He doesn't say, I want you to know, Philippians, that I am happy and healthy. I'm eating plenty of vegetables. I'm meeting with the Roman church elders every other day. I'm composing letters when I can. I want you to know this is how I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. He doesn't do that. Rather, Paul does something that demonstrates that his eyes are on the bigger picture. Though they are concerned for their friend, Paul is hardly concerned at all for his own plight. They're worried about Paul, but Paul's not worried about Paul at all. And so he doesn't give an update about himself. He doesn't calm their fears by demonstrating his own safety and victories. Rather, he calms their fears by updating the Philippians on the progress of the gospel. He absolutely does give an update, just not about himself. He gives an update on how the gospel is doing. And he doesn't calm their fears by saying, here's all the ways that I'm taking care of. He calms their fears by saying, don't worry, the gospel is still advancing. He takes his eyes He takes their eyes off himself and on to where it should be, the bigger picture, the gospel. Whenever Paul mentions himself in this passage, it's always in the context of the expansion of the gospel. So he says, what has happened to me advanced the gospel. I am in chains for Christ. And for Paul, Christ and the gospel are synonymous. Some preach Christ's jealousy to hurt my feelings, but I rejoice because the gospel is preached. Whenever... 
he's talking about himself, it's always in the context of the gospel because his eyes are on the bigger picture. Just as Paul exploded the formulaic greeting and the empty half-hearted prayers that are common to a friendly letter, here he explodes the personal update portion as well, the I want you to know that dot 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 portion of the letter. And the source of that explosion of purpose and meaning is the gospel of Jesus, which Paul is laying down his life for. The Philippians, their whole goal in sending that big gift with Epaphroditus to Paul, the Philippians, they sent that gift because they want to alleviate Paul's suffering. They want to show that they care and they want him to be well, which any friend would do for any other friend. It's totally natural. He doesn't declare his suffering alleviated. Instead, he declares that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. This gospel, this good news about Jesus as Savior, is the bigger picture that allows Paul to see success in both the short term and the long term. He sees short term success, like the gospel is advancing right now, but he sees long term success in that it doesn't matter if he lives or dies. We'll talk about that next week. Doesn't matter if he lives or dies. The long term success of the gospel is all that matters to him. So in this passage, there are two paragraphs in which Paul updates them on the progress of the gospel. There's verses 12 to 14, and there's verses 15 to 18a. By the way, maybe you don't know. I assume you do. Maybe I shouldn't assume that. You see sometimes Bible verses that have like 18a or 18b. That just means the beginning part or the end part of the verse. Whoever whoever assigned verses to the book of Philippians did a, a bad job with verse 18 because They kind of carried 18 across two paragraphs. They should have cut it off. Anyway, it's not important. But we're going to look at the first half of verse 18 and the second half next week. So there's two sections, 12 to 14 and 15 to 18. Both paragraphs are rich in both suffering and joy. And both paragraphs contain something shocking, as I mentioned before, if we're willing to hear it with fresh ears. In the first paragraph, the suffering comes from outside the church. That's when Paul mentions his chains. So, He's in chains because the Jews have been oppressing him. And now Rome itself is, he's literally shackled to Rome. So that's, those are sources of oppression from outside the church. Sources of suffering from outside the church. But in the second paragraph, the suffering doesn't come from outside the church. It comes from within the church. There are apparently envious, insincere teachers who are proclaiming Jesus and doing it selfishly, either to get something for themselves or to get back at Paul, to to make to rub it in Paul's face that Paul is locked up, but they're free to do whatever they want. So, hey, Paul, we're doing what you wish you could do. Ha ha, look at us. And I think that's kind of silly. But in one sense, he's facing oppression from outside the church, and from one sense, he's facing oppression from inside the church. In both of these, the suffering may be different, but the joy is the same. Despite the hardships Paul is experiencing from every quarter, from everywhere around him, They are having the same seed-spreading effect, both of these forms of oppression. And so Paul has the same joy for both. And the joy is that Jesus is being made known, people are being saved. Again, his eyes are on the bigger picture, the gospel is advancing. So despite these two forms of severe suffering and oppression, Paul is still able to have the same joy because the gospel is advancing. What's shocking in the first paragraph is how the spreading of the gospel in the midst of Paul's imprisonment is having an effect on his captors themselves, on the Roman guards. I I know we just examined this a few weeks ago. This is not new or fresh to you. I know we did a whole sermon basically on this, and so the novelty may have worn off, but try to hear Paul's rejoicing from the perspective of the Philippians. 
They desperately want to know how their friend is holding up under the crushing ball and chain of Rome. They're worried about Paul. They expect to hear the worst. They expect to hear that Paul is defiantly proclaiming his, his, the gospel and is willing to endure great cruelty. That's what they're expecting to hear, that the Romans are crushing Paul. Instead, they hear that the gospel is infecting and spreading into the hearts and workplaces of the very guards themselves. That it's so effective that even the palace guard is coming to know about the gospel. Since the palace guard, as the NIV translated, is literally the praetorian, that just means the the house protectors of Caesar, and since Paul is likely writing from Rome itself, that means that the personal bodyguards of the emperor himself see that this is no ordinary prisoner, that this is someone special. The gospel is rising up the ranks of Roman power all the way to the throne of Caesar himself because Paul's in prison. But it's not the collusion with powerful people that's causing Paul to rejoice. He's not rejoicing because, hey, look, we're having an effect on Caesar himself. That's not why he's rejoicing. It's how those in power are viewing Paul that causes him to rejoice. It's clear to them that he is in chains for Christ, as verse 13 says. They know he's not under arrest for criminal behavior, that he's not some political dissident that that needs to be stamped out. They know he's not under house arrest for any of those standard reasons. They see there's something different in this guy. They see that he's in prison because he's completely sold out to this upstart religion centered on a powerful, gentle rabbi who happened to have been crucified some decades earlier. There's something different about this guy. What the NIV translates in verse 13 as being in chains for Christ is literally being in chains in Christ. If it was for Christ, then it would mean he is in chains on behalf of Christ, as if Paul is doing his Savior a favor. But that's not what Paul says. He's not in chains for Christ, he's in chains in Christ. In Christ means Paul is fully embracing his discipleship to Jesus. That he sees the suffering he's going through as a crucial part of the discipleship process. That to suffer is to be in Christ. Paul rejoices because when the guards see the reason Paul is suffering, they see that it's because he is faithful to Jesus, which is his whole purpose. It's his whole big picture he's focusing on, being faithful to Jesus and and proclaiming the gospel. Here is Paul, a kind, wise, patient, compassionate man who is in chains because that's what disciples of this Jesus fellow are called to do. Disciples of Jesus are called to suffer like their master to show the world what real strength and real victory and real glory look like. Even in the midst of Caesar's own palace guard, the gospel is winning, proving that there's more than one Lord and Savior on a throne in the Empire of Rome. Well, actually, there is only one Lord and Savior on a throne in Rome, and it's not the Lord and Savior you think. It's not Caesar. It's this other guy. It's this Jesus fella. One can only have that kind of perspective that they are thankful for their chains. They are, they, they are in Christ because of these chains. They are thankful that the gospel is spreading because of these chains. They can, you can only have that kind of perspective when you have the bigger picture in mind. But Paul's chains aren't just having a positive effect on evangelism within the closed system of guard and prisoner relationship. Paul's chains are fueling evangelism among those who are outside his prison walls as well. Verse 14 says that because of Paul's chains, the brothers and sisters in the capital are becoming increasingly bold and fearless and courageous. Although Paul would certainly rather be out and about on the streets of Rome, spreading the word and sharing the gospel, undoubtedly that's where he would rather be. That's where anybody would rather be. 
rather than chained to a Roman guard. But he is content to see others outside the wall doing that very thing that he can't do. If he can't do it, he's just glad that somebody is doing it. It doesn't need to be him. It just needs to be happening. Yeah, Dave? Do we have any idea how many other Christians are in chains? At this time? Well, Christianity hasn't, isn't illegal at this point yet, so probably not a whole ton. And Paul's really only in chains because he encountered the Jews in Jerusalem, and that's what caused all the trouble. So there's probably not a lot of Christians being imprisoned for being Christians at the point at this point where he's writing to the Philippians. But he is writing to the Philippians, and Epaphroditus has made clear to him that the Philippians are facing some kind of outside persecution. We'll look at that in a few weeks as well. So by highlighting his persecution, he's saying, I know you guys are being persecuted by outside forces, so be like me. Have this bigger picture in mind. And that's what Paul said. It doesn't need to be him advancing the gospel. If he's in chains, he doesn't care as long as somebody, anybody, is doing the work of, of spreading the gospel. That's the bigger picture. If if Paul's boldness is what's inspiring people to be bold in return, then then Paul has all the more reason to rejoice. His chains have him locked down, but the Holy Spirit is not locked down, obviously. The Holy Spirit is not fettered. Even if he was if Paul was suffering in obscurity, if nobody knew he was in Rome, nobody knew where he was, he was totally all by himself, which in about three years is what will happen to Paul. But even if you were in Rome in total obscurity, Paul would still rejoice that the gospel is spreading. However, that's not the situation. The Christians do know that Paul is, is under arrest, and they do know of his continued faithful boldness to proclaim Jesus as Lord. And it does fill them with courage. Courage that if Paul can do it under constant house arrest, even in chains, then they, in their freedom, are certainly able to, to do it as well. And so Paul rejoices doubly, not just that the, the gospel is advancing, but his chains, he's happy to be in his chains because it's its making others fearless and bold. I think that's, that, that's having a much higher perspective, a much higher goal in mind. When you can see your own suffering is helping others. And so, hey, I'm glad to suffer. Well, Paul never says he's glad to suffer. He just says he sees purpose in his suffering. And I think there's a difference. Paul wants to encourage the Philippians that there is a twofold advantage to his chains. Not an advantage for himself, of course, that wouldn't make sense, but an advantage for the gospel. And since Paul is so deeply um, sold out to the gospel, then if it's, a, if it's a benefit to the gospel, then he sees it as a benefit to himself, even though it's obviously a source of pain for himself. So the, the twofold advantage to his chains is, firstly, it's spreading within his imprisonment because of his bold witness. And secondly, it's spreading outside of his imprisonment because others are being inspired by his courage. If it takes being chained at the wrist to a praetorian, Paul is pleased. He's got the bigger picture in mind. Which brings us to the second paragraph. Not everyone who's emboldened by Paul's chains is emboldened for pure and virtuous reasons. So here in verse uh, 14, Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. That's great. That sounds great. But there's a caveat to to that. Not everybody who is emboldened by Paul's chains is doing so for pure and virtuous reasons. While many are filled with courage because they love Paul and they see the injustice done to him and are inspired by his strength, others are the opposite. 
They see Paul in chains and want to rub salt in his wound. They want to parade around the city, spreading the good news of Christ precisely because they can and Paul can't. This is very weird to me. I read this and I don't identify with these these selfish preachers at all. Their motivation is that Paul is in prison and they they want to get at him somehow. That Can you imagine if I only accepted this position at Clyde Christian Bible Church just to prove to Tim Grinnett that a young guy like me can be a pastor in this area? If I ended every sermon with a prayer and ended that prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen, and take that, Grinnett. <laughs> that would be... That would be a very bizarre motivation for me to proclaim the gospel of humility and forgiveness and grace to do it in a spiteful way. So what's up with these jealous dudes anyway? Well, one commentator made a good point. The church in Rome is not a Paul the Apostle original. Not like the churches in Ephesus or Berea or Malta or Philippi. Those are churches that Paul was instrumental in starting. The Holy Spirit led him to those cities to start those congregations. But Rome had a church long before Paul ever got there. Paul didn't start the Roman church, but Paul was this big shot, this fancy Eastern apostle. Ooh, he's an apostle strolling into our city, trying to ruin our reputation as if he runs this town. Well, he don't run nothing. We run the church in Rome. These people are thinking we'll show him. We're going to evangelize so hard. It'll make him wish that he was as free as we are. It's just bizarre to me that the mindset of these selfish preachers to me, it demonstrates a predisposition to not having the bigger picture in mind at all. This kind of disunity, this kind of one-upmanship. It shows you don't have the big picture in mind at all. Their refusal to see Paul as a fellow brother in Christ who happens to bear the authority of, of an apostle commissioned by Jesus himself. I mean, this guy met with Jesus and Jesus said, go to the Gentiles. Nobody in Rome has that same privilege. Nobody in Rome has that same authority. So even take that aside, even if they, they can't even see Paul as a brother in Christ. That's a pretty strong critique of their faith. It's like Shirelli signing his unproven aging backup goalie to a huge four-year contract. Sure, he had some good games, but that's a lot of commitment when you don't really know what you're getting. It's a short-sighted move that will almost certainly have negative consequences in the future. Sorry, I'm just really bitter about how this hockey season is going. <laughs> It's just so short-sighted. And I think that's that these Paul detractors have the same short-sightedness. They're not able to see the big picture. They're selfishly worried about themselves right now. They can get something out of Paul being in chains. But the shocking thing about the second paragraph isn't that there are people who are proclaiming Christ just because they're opposing Paul. That's bizarre for sure, that they're celebrating Paul being imprisoned by going out and preaching Jesus some more, just like Paul would be doing. That That's very weird to me. But that's not the truly shocking thing. To me, the truly shocking thing about this passage is how lenient Paul is towards these guys. He uses some harsh words about them, words like envy and rivalry and selfish, selfish ambition. Those are words that Paul only ever uses when he's making a list of vices that we as believers should avoid. That's the only time he talks about envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. There are words that Paul uses to describe false teachers and other individuals who in other books of the Bible, like I'm thinking of Corinthians specifically, in other books of the Bible, when Paul uses these words about you, he is condemning you. He is saying, be nothing like these people, flee from these people, reject these people. But here he's not condemning these people. He's, he's not condemning his opponents, even though he probably is insinuating that. He's, that's not why he, he mentions them. 
Whether they are using Paul's chains as an opportunity to rub salt in his wounds or to promote what they view as right teaching with Paul now out of the way, whatever their short-sighted selfish motivation might be, Paul himself is able to take a much more gracious view of the bigger picture. Paul's purpose in writing about his struggles isn't to complain. It isn't to get the Philippians all riled up to come to Rome and defeat these, these selfish opponents of his. That's not why he mentions them. Paul's motivation is a singular focus on the bigger picture, the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. Sure, those jerks and jokers are causing him pain and strife, but much like the chains themselves, God is able to take something misguided and evil, their selfish ambition, and use it for his own redemptive purposes. After all, the people, these selfish people, they're going out, they're evangelizing real people. They're saving real people for Jesus. And these real people who are coming to Jesus, they're not coming to Jesus despite Paul. They have no idea who Paul is. They couldn't care less about Paul. They're coming to Jesus to come to Jesus. No matter what the motivations of these false teachers are, Paul's able to see, hey, good is coming out of this. It might be an evil reason, but God's able to turn these twisted, corrupt reasons into good. They're coming to Jesus. And so Paul rejoices. So it's not that Paul is saying that our motivations for church leadership are unimportant. Obviously not. That is not what Paul is saying. Read any other book that Paul's written. The reason why you're going into leadership is crucially important. In fact, he just mentioned a verse earlier about bearing righteous fruit and being judged on the day of the Lord. So your intentions matter. The purposes of our heart matter. If we seek leadership in the church out of vanity or self-righteousness or a lust for power or to get back at someone, if that's why I'm the pastor is so I can have power over you people, kick me out, get me out of here. Because that is the most corrupt and broken reason to want to be a pastor. I want to uh, let you know that that is not why I want to be pastor. (laughs) Don't get kick me out of here. Um, But if we seek leadership for impure reasons, then then we're just not good leaders. We're not being Christ-like. Jesus is able to bring light out of even the most dark and corrupted hearts. He is able to wring clean water out of even the filthiest rags. And that's true of myself. I, I don't always have the purest motivations for the things that I do for Jesus. And still he uses those impure motivations. Still he uses my impure heart to do good. And he does that with you as well. The bigger picture that Paul can see is that whether the gospel is spreading because people love and support him or whether the gospel is spreading because people hate him and want to spite him, who cares? That's what he's saying. Some people do it out of love. Some people do it out of hate towards me. I don't care. Who cares? It's not about Paul anyways. It's about Jesus. And since Paul is in Jesus, to use the Greek words of verse 13, whenever Jesus is glorified, Paul rejoices because that's his purpose. He says it himself in verse 18. Uh, highlighted here in green when he writes what does it matter basically who cares what their motivations are the important thing is that in every way whether from false motives or true christ is preached and because of that i rejoice you you really have to have your mind on the bigger picture to be able to say something like that people are actively trying to hurt paul to discredit him to to rub it in his face that he's in prison. It's, it's a brutal thing that he's, he's experiencing. And still he's able to rejoice.
Paul is obviously suffering. He is in no way diminishing his oppression, nor is he naively waving off injustice, nor is he offering easy, meaningless answers for big questions about human pain. He's not saying, hey, I'm suffering and that's fine. It's okay. Don't worry about me. He's not brushing off his suffering. Moreover, he's clearly disappointed in the selfish, heartless purposes of his opponents in Rome. He's not giving them a free pass. He's not saying that what they're doing is okay because Christ is being glorified. He's just able to rejoice because Christ is glorified in their brokenness, in their impurity, and their selfishness. So there's a lot of pain and suffering that Paul is feeling, and he's not dismissing any of it. He's feeling that. But the Philippians, they expected to get an update about how Paul is doing in the midst of all this hurt. Instead, they get an update on how the gospel is doing in the midst of all this hurt. And how is the gospel doing? It's doing fantastically well, thank you. It's doing excellent. Paul is hurting, but the gospel is thriving. And that is precisely why Paul can rejoice. That's the bigger picture that he's got his eyes on. Paul isn't concerned with his own life. That is short term. That is a small picture. His own life. That's right. Our own life is just a small picture. And we don't like to think that way. I like to think that my life is the big picture. Because it's my life. It's all I know. I want it to mean something. I want it to be impactful, obviously. But my life is not the big picture. My life is the small picture. Our life, our life is just a very small brush stroke on a very large and very lovely canvas. Very large. And our brush stroke is very small. Our life is just one lovely pirouette in a beautifully choreographed ballet production. It's just one small dance in a whole huge divinely choreographed whole ensemble thing. Our life is just a single face-off win in a long and strenuous season, striving for the ultimate victory. If we focus only on the conditions of our single brushstroke, our single pirouette, our single face-off, if we focus only on our own small, short, wonderful little lives, if that's all we're worried about is ourself, then we are missing how our smallness can contribute to the greatness of our Savior's glorious work in its entirety. Yeah, it's we're just one small brushstroke, but the, the picture's incomplete without it. Yeah, it's just one small face-off win. But without that face-off win, you don't have puck possession, you can't score. We may be small, but in smallness, Jesus is able to accomplish great things. What does he compare the kingdom of heaven to? A mustard seed, the smallest of all the seeds but it blossoms into something enormous that takes over the whole garden and the birds of the air come and and find shelter in. That's us, a very small thing. Our lives are very small. To some, that might sound demeaning and dismissive to say that you're just a small part of a bigger portrait, that your life is the small thing, that you need to worry about something beyond yourself. To some, that's demeaning and dismissive. Hear it the wrong way, and it almost sounds like Ecclesiastes, like God uses you as a tool for his purposes as you suffer, and then you die. So what's the point? If you hear it the wrong way, it sounds harsh. It almost sounds like you have little worth. But I think it's the opposite. In laying down his life and focusing on the bigger picture despite his change, despite his oppressors, does Paul's existence seem pointless to you? And I'm asking. Does anything about Paul's life seem pointless to you? No, far from it. Not it, it doesn't to me either. Rather, by submitting the entirety of our lives over to God to accomplish his purposes, 
by seeing every act as potential to bring him glory, by knowing our suffering is a means to bear witness to his greatness, by keeping our eyes on the bigger picture of our loving God and his perfect will, then I think our lives and deaths will be filled with purpose. Beautiful purpose. If we focus only on ourselves, then yeah, life is pretty meaningless. But if we have our eyes on the bigger picture, and if we're able to see God's goodness and God's greatness and God's glory, even in the worst things that we're enduring, then I think even the worst things we're enduring have a beautiful purpose and can lead us to rejoice. Why? Because the bigger picture, because the gospel is advancing. After all, it was only after being terrible for a decade that the Oilers landed Connor McDavid. It paid off in glory. All that suffering paid off in glory. Now they just need to do something with it. They just need to be focused on the bigger picture. And the biggest picture of all is the glory of our Lord Jesus. So focus on that. Focus on on the big picture. The small picture is, is ourselves. I think we should be modeled after Paul, who saw even in his suffering, even in the worst that was happening to him, he could see the bigger picture, that the gospel was advancing. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, thank you that in Jesus we have purpose and meaning. Even though we are very small, uh, even though we endure terrible things and great suffering, thank you that you redeem those things. That even though we are imperfect, that we are like filthy rags so much of the time, that you're able to draw clean water out of that, out of us. And that That's my prayer for us as a church body, that we would do things having a sight towards your goodness and your glory, not our own goodness and glory. That we would know we are small and we would still commit to great acts of faith. That we would still focus on the bigger picture, on you, Jesus. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make us people mindful of where you are and how you're acting. Help us to be small people who do great things. And we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Small people, little chickadees, you, you, in your smallness, you have great worth, great value. So, so go out and focus on the bigger picture. This fancy Eastern apostle, ooh, he's an apostle. And how is the gospel doing? It's doing fantastically well, thank you. We're going to evangelize so hard. 